The Start On Demand. On demand. The tail does not wag the dog. That's what Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister says in response to the city asking for budget numbers ahead of time. So we'll get into the latest squabble between the province and the city. Canada's Food Guide is pushing for more plant-based protein in your diet. We'll speak to a professor on food distribution policy and get his thoughts on the guide and its potential ramifications. We'll ask the question, when it comes to hockey, is it wrong to say defense woman. We'll find out how Winnipeg Crime Stoppers works since it is Crime Stoppers Awareness Month and history is made with today's Oscar nominations not once but twice in the Best Picture category. I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb and this is the Tuesday, January 22nd podcast for The Start. We're waiting to hear this morning just how Winnipeg's mayor is going to respond to the premier asserting several times that Manitoba's capital, Winnipeg, receives, quote, the most unconditional funding arrangement out of any city in Canada. In fact, he repeatedly called it extremely generous. So we've asked Mayor Brian Bowman to come on this morning. He didn't have time, but he has said he will respond to this later today. So this is the backstory. Earlier this month, the mayor said it was delaying its own budget, the city budget, which is usually released within the next few weeks, until it receives more information on just how much money it's going to be getting from the province for 2019. Bowman's argument is that it's tough to plan the city budget without those details. While Premier Brian Pallister has responded by basically saying, too bad, telling reporters that's not how it works. Tail doesn't wag the dog. Tail doesn't wag the dog. No, no provincial government gives written confirmation of budgetary items to a city. No one. You can't find one. It is a bad thing. It's a bad precedent. It's like me demanding the prime minister give me exactly the numbers that the federal government's going to have in its budget for me so I can do my budget. That's what it's like. Okay? So show some respect for the show some respect for each other's levels of government. Stop trying to bang a cup around and blame each other because that doesn't get us anywhere. We have to work together here. We have the same challenges. We're facing up to them at the at the provincial government level. The city needs to face up to them at the city level so you're as not well. Suggesting they're going to get less. They're not going no, to get I'm not suggesting they're going to get anything but the most generous treatment in Canada. So generous, like I said, was used several times in that statement. I've got another clip to play later. And we're going to ask the mayor to respond to that because what does generous, what does generosity mean? Is it the most, the richest funding arrangement in Canada or the most generous? I'm not really sure how we would qualify that. I do know that this argument does exist on another level. The, The premier will go to the prime minister and all premiers do saying, for example, what are we getting in healthcare funding this year? And it might not be a specific number, but they're looking for the same kind of details. Now, is the premier right on you can't just throw out a budget ahead of time? There are all sorts of rules and regulations around that, and I can respect that. But is there a, is there a bigger fundamental argument here on playing nicer together with those details so everybody can plan appropriately? Yeah, well, it doesn't ever sound like... The premier's trying to build a relationship with Brian Bowman. It's it, it's very frustrating. It, it's very adversarial. It's almost confrontational. I don't understand the tone. Now, is that all on the premier? I mean, I've also heard Bowman come well, out. I'm just going you based. Know, on, I'm just going based on, on this t- clip. On this clip, I'm from going Tuesday. on this clip. Okay. I'm going based on this discussion. Correct me if I'm wrong. Either one of you did Manitoba not vow to not sign any agreement as it pertained to health care unless the funding was guaranteed for a certain amount of time? Did the province of Manitoba not threaten and and be the one of the last provinces to sign the accord and the agreement with regard to marijuana and the legalization of cannabis if they didn't have some sort of idea of of how taxation and how the regulations would would play out? So, I mean, Manitoba has played this game with Ottawa before, but what I don't understand, what I don't understand is when I hear words like the most my radar, my antenna go up right away. It's like, is that is that accurate? And the other side of it is it never feels like there's any conciliatory language here. Like, why can't you just say, you know, I understand. I know I would like that too from Ottawa, but the but the facts are these, the logistics are are this, and we simply can't do it. I never hear language like that. So it's so frustrating. Here are some of the facts. I think the city has received 
in previous governments increases year over year. Sometimes that was to the rate of inflation. Sometimes that was double the rate of inflation. And so they'd be getting 4% increases uh, from the province. In 2016, the premier, of course, as we know, was elected on what his mission was, fiscal responsibility. So there has been a funding freeze to municipal governments. So I don't know if you can use freeze and generous in the same sentence. That doesn't mean there's less money, but there's not more money. Here again is Brian Pallister. The city of Winnipeg has received generous increases in funding over the last number of years. You know that. So I would totally refute the argument that we are being anything but generous and fair to the city of Winnipeg and to all our municipal governments. So again, not, not money. Sorry, I'm having problems. That's the, okay. The, the buttons are sticking. I needed a restart anyway because I also stuttered, so it worked for me, okay. if anybody heard that. Uh, yeah, so it's not less money. It just hasn't been more. And he also hasn't said whether or not that freeze is going to stay or go. There was arguments two years ago about transit funding and, and whether or not they were going to see funding for certain projects. And that stalled for several months. And so I can appreciate where the mayor's coming from saying any more details. Uh, the premier is essentially, to me, sounding like saying, you're, you're, you're fine. Maybe you need to get your house in order. The last time the premier was here with Brett and I, he sat right where you're sitting here uh, right now, Loren, in that chair. And I asked him a couple different times whether or not he felt that Manitoba Hydro was an asset or a liability. And I have to tell you, every time I hear the premier speak about the city of Winnipeg, He makes me feel as though uh, the fact that the city of Winnipeg is inside the province of Manitoba feels like it's a liability to him, that there's no asset here, that the people of Winnipeg are are simply just uh, sponging off the rest of the people of Manitoba in terms of provincial funding for transit, for police. There's, you know, let's realize more than 70% of the provincial population lies in Metro Winnipeg. And so people are looking for services. They're the same people that pay provincial sales tax, provincial income tax, pay city taxes, and are, are looking for a partnership between the city and the province. Yeah, whenever I hear uh, this kind of squabbling, it frustrates me. Now, on one hand, I, I get where Pallister's coming from saying we're not going to give you the budget numbers because, for example, a real-life example for me, I don't know by how much my rent will increase until the realty company hands me my lease renewal. I can't call them and say, what are you raising my rent by? I need to budget my year. Right. No, I got to wait for them to give me that sheet, and then I look and I but see... But you know that, when it comes. I know when it comes, but and so I know Same with your mortgage, ish. same with your interest rates, all the right. They just drop, and you're left dealing with it. Yeah, so I have to wait until they give me that sheet, and then I, yep. ma- then I make my plans accordingly. But when I hear this kind of squabbling, it just frustrates me that, that why can't the two big leaders in our province just get along? You know, it's such a simple thing. Why, why do you have to always be fighting with each other? It just bothers me. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, the Oscar nominations are in. Eight films vying for Best Picture. I mentioned history has been made times two for the Best Picture category. Here is reason number one. Black Panther. Must feel good. Sitting here comfortable. What do you want? Your secrets. Your weapons. I'ma burn it all. This ends today. Black Panther. You need a hero. Ready PG-13. The very first superhero movie to ever get a nomination in the Best Picture category, as producer Kyle mentioned earlier, when The Dark Knight was released, many said that should have been nominated. It was not, but that was the movie, that was essentially the linchpin that prompted the Oscars to expand the category to be up to 10 nominations, and now we finally have one in the category. Did you see Black Panther, Greg? Absolutely did. I really enjoyed it. Great film. So we have eight Films up for Best Picture yeah. of the Year, right? Yeah. Do you want to list them off? Black Panther is the first one. Black Klansman from Spike Lee. Bohemian Rhapsody, the letter B, getting good representation in the Best <laughs> Picture category. The Favorite, Green Book, A Star is Born, Vice, and then the second reason why it's a historic set of nominees, Roma. This is the first film from Netflix to make it into the Best picture category and this is i believe it was jeff braun my co-host of the couch potatoes on this show said oh i i know you're going to want to see it because it's black and white 
It's a foreign <laughs> film with subtitles. You had Come me in. at yeah. subtitles, yeah. correct? But it's from uh, Oscar-winning director Alfonso Cuaron, who directed Gravity, that Sandra Bullock space adventure from a few years back. He also directed one of my favorite movies of all time, Children of Men, which was set in kind of a bleak world where women simply could not get pregnant anymore. And the population was essentially just waiting to die because they mm. couldn't reproduce. Very good film. And there was a film that had subtitles. Um, what was the Italian one? I don't I can't remember if it won Best Picture. It's a wonderful, no. Yes. Remember, it was set in wartime. Anyway, it did have subtitles. It was a foreign film. And he won Best Actor. And I think it also won Best Picture. Like, the last time I watched the Oscars, which was 15 years ago. Oh, is he the guy who, like, crawled, crawled over people? Crawled on the seats. Life a, is beautiful. Life is beautiful. Is beautiful. Thank it you. It won Best Actor. I don't think it won Best Picture. It won Best Foreign Film, film probably. Oh, okay. Yeah. And best actor. But it was it set the precedent for a subtitled film to to win some awards too in different categories. Brett, I'm noticing that A Star is Born has been nominated for Best Picture. Yep. Bradley Cooper for lead actor. Yep. Lady Gaga, lead actress. Yep. And you even got a nod for adapted screenplay for Bradley Cooper, but no Best Director nomination for Bradley Cooper. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, that's uh, that's a shame. I think that he, his achievement with this film is being overlooked here. But, I mean, you can only include five. Best Director, Spike Lee for Black Klansman. Uh, Powell Polakowski for a movie called Cold War. Never heard of it. Yorgos Lanthimos for The Favorite, Alfonso Cuaron for Roma, and Adam McKay for Vice. Uh, Star is Born also got nominated for Supporting Actor, uh, Sam Elliott mm-hmm. for A Star is Born. And did he get nominated for Song? I assume there's a yes. song nomination. Shallow, A Star is Born, the okay. Lady Gaga song. Well, he should have got all five nominations. I don't know if any song can beat that this year. I could, I could be proven wrong, but I don't think I will. And I had to double check this. Lead actress, Melissa McCarthy, got nominated. And it's not for Tammy, thank goodness. Yep. One of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> Can you ever forgive me? I, I, do you know anything about this film, Brett McGarry? I, I got to say I don't. And this is one of the things that's uh, tricky about the Oscars is there are so many movies that that get nominated that people have never heard of. Now, I have heard of this film, but I believe it was just one of these little, if memory serves, I think it was a a limited release. I do believe it played here in Winnipeg very briefly at uh, Cineplex McGilvery, and it's, uh, she plays someone named Lee Israel, best-selling celebrity biographer and cat lover who made her living in the 70s and 80s profiling the likes of Catherine Hepburn, uh, Estee Lauder, journalist Dorothy Kilgallen, and when Lee found herself unable to get published because she had fallen out of step of the marketplace, she turned her art form to deception, abetted by her loyal friend Jack. Yeah, she forges or she steals, I think, uh, I don't know if it's from other authors or other authors' notes and sort of compiles a book together. And I'm not sure if that's what she's asking for forgiveness for or if there's something else. But I really like Melissa McCarthy in many films, not Tammy, as you mentioned, but... Other yeah. ones. Well, it's good to see her nominated as well because the problem is comedic work very rarely gets nominated. I remember Will Ferrell and Jack Black did that hilarious song at the Oscars over a decade ago where they lamented that comedy does not get its due mm-hmm. at the Oscars. It's often harder to do comedy. That's why I think a lot of comedians end up doing dramatic work because they want to get Take those, a break. those well, nominations. Steve Carell, right? Great example. Yeah, no a lot one, of people say he's chasing an Oscar nomination. None for him this morning, though. Yeah, he's he is definitely chasing an Oscar. Jim Carrey tried to chase an Oscar. He eventually gave up on that dream. The Oscars will be handed out Sunday, February 24th. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Neil Young tickets coming up at 8.37. And if you want more information on that Oscar nominations list, I just put a link to that up on our 680CJOB Instagram story. And then at 8.45, we just heard from Leah Hextall and Hextall on a hockey. But at 8.45, she's going to explain why she used the term defense woman when she was calling a game. And as I say that, it sounds like it might be kind of trivial, but really, in the context of sport, it is not terminology that we are used to hearing. So looking forward to hearing what was going on with her when she decided to say that, and uh, she had that conversation with Christian O'Mell yesterday. But later this morning, actually, I guess in about an hour from now, Canada's Food Guide is going to get a facelift, Loren. Yeah, move over, meat and potatoes. Can I, think. I, have, can I have a tissue, please? <laughs> You're, meat and potatoes. I, 
vegetables are not, they're not gone. We don't predict that they're gone, but it, it sounds like vegetables and fruits could be taking over your plate. At least that's what we're expecting when that new updated food guide is released, as Brett said, in about an hour's time. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois is a professor of food distribution for Dalhousie University and has been following the changes very closely. He's already predicted a possible move away from meat-based proteins to plants, so just more greens on your plate, Greg. We spoke spoke to him earlier this morning. All right. Well, let's just start with what we're going to be putting on our plate, Sylvain, what we're supposed to be putting on our plate now. Uh, The four food groups that I grew up with, is that now a thing of the past? Well, it appears as though uh, the four food groups that we all know of uh, are on their way out. And uh, we're we're probably going to see food categories. The focus is not going to be on food products but much more so on uh, nutrients instead. So uh, instead of hearing words like milk, cheese, beef, uh, you'll probably hear um, um, topics like fibers and proteins and things like that. How religiously did Canadians follow the Canada Food Guide heading, you know, prior to today, shall we say? Well, we're actually conducting a study on this right now, and we should be able to release the results in about a month's time. Uh, However, uh, I would say, uh, based on some results that we're gathering, uh, not a whole lot of Canadians actually do follow the food guide, but they know it. They know it, and uh, and frankly, they are, many recognize that it is influential uh, across the board. It influences professionals, it it influences industrial buyers, national defense, hospitals, universities, you name it. Uh, So I think there is this collective recognition that the food guide actually does matter to many people. With the guide expecting to have a bigger focus on plant-based sources of proteins, is this more about looking at our food as fuel to keep us healthy? Uh, Well, if you go back to 2017, that's that's really what Health Canada was uh, was planning to do, and based on some rumors, I think they're going to go ahead with uh, with a plant-based narrative. So, um, animal-based proteins are are not going to be on the on their way out, but they're not going to be as prominent as uh, as they used to, and that would include obviously dairy and meat products. So it'll be interesting to see exactly how they position animal proteins uh, across the uh, the next food guide. What's behind this shift? I mean, what's the driving force behind saying that we don't necessarily need all these food groups, but we need to concentrate on maybe perhaps the science behind our food, Sylvain, like understanding it better when it comes to everything from fibers to fats? I think there's a couple of things there. Uh, on the one side, I think Canada is catching up to the rest of the world because, frankly, our can- uh, our food guide is a bit archaic. It, uh, if you go back to 1942, our first food guide, uh, there's not much difference with the food guide we have today. It doesn't look at lifestyle. doesn't look at ethnicity very seriously. It's not flexible. It doesn't adapt to uh, consumers that age. Uh, there's also gender. That is a big, big factor. Men tend to consume more than women, and they will consume food differently. So the, the next food guide, I think, is going to be much more flexible than it is than the one we have today. And, of course, science. We know more about food than we did just back in 2007 when the last food guy was released. So we've, I think really the approach has been science-based uh, uh, and, uh, and we're likely to see a very different food guy. So is this acknowledging that Canadians are more sophisticated as shoppers, consumers of, of food, or is the language more patronizing than anything? I think there's two sides to this story. On the one side, I think on content, in terms of what we should be eating, I think the message is going to be much more sophisticated. What I'm concerned about is on the behavioral side and uh, lifestyle practices, uh, whether or not uh, the food guide will be patronizing, I'm not sure. It really depends uh, of the tone and how they're going to implement this, this new food guide. It'll be interesting to watch over the next few months. And how they message it, like if the ads come out telling me, you know, just be smart and make healthy choices, that's not going to influence my decisions in any way. I know I'm supposed to do that. I might not know how to get there always. 
And, and, and let's face it, some, some, many of us want to indulge. I mean, once in a while, what's wrong? And the Super Bowl is coming up, and, of course, we're all going to sit down. We're not going to follow the food guide as we watch the football game. That's not how it works in life. <laughs> and, of course, we're still, we're still hoping one day that Hell Canada will include beer and nachos as part of a food group, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, humans are humans. Uh, we're creatures of habits, it's, and some habits are hard to break. So humanizing the approach is very important, I think. And so I, I suspect and I hope that Health Canada will keep that in mind. Sylvain Chatelebois from Dalhousie University on the Canada Food Guide, which is getting an upgrade, or face, well, upgrade in the eyes of some, perhaps. Yeah. Is it going to say, like, it's I can change. have chips? On a daily basis, like, where's that category? I would not count on that, Loren. Beet chips, maybe. Beet chips are delicious. <laughs> Beet chips are not what I was. I, I don't disagree. They're good. Yeah, Pine Ridge Hollow has. Great Did you have chips. those? But when yeah. you went there, oh, I've been oh, meaning yeah. to ask that. They were so good. Completely digress here, but I like it. A beet chip. I've tried to make those at home. You can't do them like a restaurant. They just need to have that little side snack category and give you an idea of what's allowed. Like if I follow this. Monday through Saturday, what can I eat on Sunday? Like, give me that, give me that carrot. Well, as he said, well, but I don't want it to be carrots. I want it to be chicken wings and pizza. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. It's not going to be your Super Bowl meal. Go yeah. ahead, Greg. As many chicken wings as you want. Just, just give me just a little idea. You How many nachos? can I have? Sure. Yeah, here's a plate of arugula for your Super Bowl <laughs> snacks. <laughs> Arugula, oh, I'm just imagining like modified nachos instead of corn tortilla chips, arugula, seaweed nachos or something, kale, kale chips. Just put me on a nice flow now. All right, so we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about a series of fires uh, that have taken place across Winnipeg. Last night, for the second time in just seven days, firefighters were actually called to the same apartment block on Maryland to battle a blaze. First one was Monday when four people were taken to hospital one week ago Monday. 40 people evacuated and then last night crews had to return. Uh, It's the latest in in a bunch of fires that had a lot of us asking the question, how many people had tenants insurance? And we know the answer is always not that many. And then if they didn't, is it time to find a way to mandate this? So for more, we're joined by Rob Dupreeze with the Insurance Bureau of Canada. We reached out yesterday and Rob agreed to join us today. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Well, we really appreciate the access and and the information here. So, yeah, I think Loren did a good job of outlining some of the questions that have come up over the last several days. And why don't we start with the question, is there a way to mandate that tenants renting a unit have tenant insurance? There's no mandatory legislation across the country that requires a tenant to have insurance, but a landlord could demand proof of insurance before renting a unit. It is legal and it could be part of the term of the lease. It's up to the tenant whether or not to agree to the term of that lease and a tenant can try to negotiate that term with the landlord. Do you have any sense how many property owners are taking advantage of the fact that they can do that? Because it's more often than not when we hear the scenario that the person didn't have renters or tenants insurance. And so I'm curious if you know, is there a growing movement for at least the property owners to try to push that onto their tenants? There's a lot more property owners and landlords that are putting those clauses inside of the leases. It just makes sense for not only the landlord, but for the tenant as well. If you're a tenant, you have stuff. You want to protect your your stuff, your contents. But if something ever happens to where you're living, insurance can also provide you with some of the additional living expenses, the hotel costs or the food if you can't live there. And it also helps protect you in the event of a lawsuit. So one of of the things that uh, came up yesterday had to do with how much urging outside of putting it as a part of your lease, which we now know is something that uh, any landlord or property owner is certainly within their right to do or demand. Are there other limitations that was suggested to us yesterday by a housing advocate that there are limitations uh, that uh, are in place for landlords in terms of how much they can urge or suggest uh, someone buy a property or tenant's insurance if they don't have it. Is, is, would that be accurate? 
It is. It has to be reasonable, and the insurance product has to be available. If you're demanding something that's outside the scope of the usual insurance policies that are available, clearly a tenant is not able to purchase one of those products. So it just won't be available, and they won't be able to come to terms with the landlord. Is there anything preventing a property owner from acquiring a policy which would cover tenants' contents and other coverages, like shelter, etc., in case of a fire? There is. In order to insure the contents, you need to have what's called an insurable interest, which is essentially a stake in the value of the property. A landlord that's not subject to financial loss does not have an insurable interest in the property. Therefore, they can't obtain insurance coverage for that stuff. So there would be no way, um, you know, I own several rental properties, so there would be no way for me to uh, take this responsibility on and and say, you know, because uh, maybe I'm in a a different situation than a renter and say, you know what, I'm going to create a situation where you just pay an extra 20 bucks a month. I'm just going to raise my rents. And this is included as part of the rent. There's really no option there for me to do that, is what I'm hearing you say, Rob. There really isn't. Where we come across this at times is when some of the landlords may own all of the stuff inside of the unit, and they may rent it as a fully furnished unit. In that event, the landlord owns all the contents and would be able to insure it. But you're not able to insure something that you don't own. Is is there any jurisdiction, Rob, that's doing this differently? Like if we're talking about the idea that a property owner doesn't have, is, can't, can't enforce it, they can mandate it, but they can't uh, buy it in bulk. And you're talking about you can't enforce it on tenants, make it mandatory for tenants. Where are there other places or countries that are doing it better? And perhaps we can learn from that. Canada has one of the most sophisticated insurance programs around the world. We're very lucky and fortunate in where we live that we do have product availability that's at an affordable price. When we look at across the country, property policies for tenants are very, very similar. So we don't see it in any other jurisdiction that's really significantly different from around the Winnipeg area. Is tenant insurance available on a monthly payment basis? Yeah, it is. Commonly, tenants insurance policies are available in monthly payments, or also you could pay it on an annual basis as well. Something to keep in mind is there may be discounts available. So have a conversation with an insurance representative. You may be surprised to find at how little the cost for insuring your stuff and protecting yourself is actually going to cost you. Is there a provision then, and this is coming from some of our listeners, you know, a lot of the fires happen in... um can happen in lower income neighborhoods. People might be on social assistance and the cost of tenants insurance just might be something that's just not in their realm. Is there, you mentioned discount, is there an allowance in any policies that would help in that situation for someone on social assistance or other? Yeah, everyone's situation is going to be a little bit different. The premium is made up of a whole bunch of different factors, including what type of coverage you want, and some of the limits. There's a lot of choices that people do have. So have that conversation to talk about your situation specifically and find out if that's something that is going to be available to you. I think uh, uh, there's a lot that has been learned in the last few minutes here, Rob. We appreciate you taking time to do that. And and, and I think I've realized that I have a conversation uh, that I need to have with, with several tenants of mine that I know I've not ever had the conversation. So so thank you for making time for us so that we can bring these uh, these situations to light and some of the options available as well. Well, you're very welcome. And if anyone has any questions, they can reach out to us or check out our website at ibc.ca. Rob Dupree, Insurance Bureau of Canada, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Rob, thank you very much for the time. Have you ever heard of a defense woman? Women play sports. It's not like that's something new. Hey, did you know women play sports? Oh, here we go. I had no idea. No, it's... it's Do they even like, play hockey? Yeah, it's they've been playing forever, but that kind of terminology is not at all common to hear defense woman. Well, our very own Leah Hextall, host of Hextall on Hockey, used the term while calling the Canadian Women's Hockey League All-Star Game on Sportsnet. Christian O'Mell, host of the 680 CJOB Sports Show, which runs weeknights from 7 to 9 p.m., talked to her about it last night. In the moment, Christian, it came naturally, but the fact is, is that Ever since I started calling the game, 
it has been something on my radar because every time I go to speak about a defenseman and go to say the word defenseman, there's something about me that stops and I go, am I saying the right word? And I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it until you're calling the game and you're talking about the women's game as frequently as we have been. And, and it's one of those things that I'm not really hypersensitive to those type of issues. I always go, you know, I think as a society, we're a little bit too sensitive about those type of things. But I see other people say defender, defense, um, you know, and I just, but I just kind of felt to me, I spoke to a few NHL people about it because I wanted to get some opinions about it. And when I said defender, a lot of them said to me, that's not hockey though. That doesn't feel like a hockey term. And, and I agree with that. I think of soccer when yeah, I hear the I, word I defender. Do too. Yes. And so to me, I know that I've had a lot of people reach out and say, well, it's defender, but to me, it's not, I don't want to say the word defender when I'm describing these women who are defensemen. And then people start getting into the, you know, well, it's human and humanity. And so it can be defenseman still in the women's game. And I think that's got a really good point. But it comes, the, the problem is, is that when you say it in certain ways, like the way I used it in the game was that I was calling the game and a defense woman for Montreal, Erin Ambrose, she leads the entire league in scoring by defensemen. And the fact was that she was heading down the ice. I wanted to drop in that nugget so that people knew that, yeah, she's a defenseman, but she's got an offensive threat. So I said, Aaron Ambrose taking it down the week, taking it down the wing. She's the leading. And I was about to say defenseman, leading scored of defenseman in the league. And it just came out defense woman because as soon as I went to say it, I thought defenseman doesn't sound right. Then she asked Christian, what do you think, Christian? Well, as someone who's called women's hockey and women's sports before I, I feel the same way where what you go to say it is just it's a, it's an unfamiliar word right yes and it's only one extra syllable right defense woman defense men but it's the same thing firemen mm-hmm. policemen all those words that we've kind of gone away from it's not it doesn't feel like there's a wrong answer generally when you're doing a game you don't usually say the position of players right you're normally just yes. saying their names but I don't really I think it's cool to say defense woman Yeah, and it just kind of came out. And I mean, you know, when you're calling a game and you're doing play-by-play, you have to be very economical in your words. You don't want to be saying too much because everything is going by so fast, especially in hockey. So it is that extra syllable. But to your point, I don't have to say it very often. But when I am talking about things like that, she's the leading defenseman in scoring or something like that, that's where it becomes an issue to me. So I don't know. No one, uh, you know, no one reacted poorly to it, but I agree yeah. with you in so many ways in society, we've kind of tried to make it gender neutral. So to me, I thought maybe if I say it, is that putting us backwards? So I, I might be <laughs> overthinking it, but maybe. it came out and it came out and it felt very natural and I didn't even think about it. And I think I said it probably, you know, I only had to say it about twice in the entire broadcast, but mm-hmm. I did say defense woman and, um, you know, nobody seemed to think that that was the wrong thing to say, so it may come out again at some point. That's Leah Hextall with Christian O'Mell on the CJOB Sports Show last night. Greg, what do you think? If the shoe fits. I don't. It's, I think it's very apropos. What's shocking to me um, is only that I never paused to think about it until she raised this and the language that we're using there. We've changed all sorts of things, as she mentioned, like policemen, fire, firemen to firefighters, uh, just police officers, right? And 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 I don't want to. I don't want to hear from anyone who says, "Oh, now we're being too sensitive." I just. I would like to hear from hockey players, female hockey players, about what they think. If you go onto Hockey Canada's web page, page they'll list the defensemen yes. for the Team Canada women's team, but they're not men; they're women. And so I, I never paused until this moment to stop and think about in this particular venue why we're not saying something different. And uh, Leah acknowledged she's not out there to make a political statement. She's not trying to change the world. It just didn't feel right for her to say defenseman and that it felt natural to say what she did say. All the more power to her. I, I, what's Hey, that's awesome. Canada Food Guide. We were talking about that last hour with Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University, that it's likely to get a facelift in terms of the proteins that we consume. Mm-hmm. And Lorraine, I guess, the has it been revealed? Yeah, they just it, just at this hour, a few minutes ago, revealed their new plan. I'm going to post a link uh, to, to my, my Twitter feed, at McNabb on Global. But the plate is super interesting. The first picture you see is of a plate full of food. 
half of it is vegetables and a little bit of fruit. A quarter of it would be protein, but there's way more nuts and eggs on there than there is meat. And then the other quarter would have a little bit of bread, but more of those whole grains, uh, pastas, not your white rice, but your brown rice, your wild rice, your quinoa, those kinds of things. And so the startling thing there is that you don't see a lot of that nice beige carb color that uh, feeds so many of us. Three little pieces of steak, three little pieces chicken. of chicken mm-hmm. like this. If this plate represented the globe, the the, the steak would be like Norway mm-hmm. and the chicken would be Denmark and the rest is basically uh, fruits and yeah, vegetables, vegetables and things that come from the earth. North America and South America taking over the planet there. Yeah, if you did it like a globe, it's half, half, half your world needs to be vegetables now. So, Greg, we are... Since we're now about four days past the date that most people have given up on their New Year's resolutions, a lot of that has to do with the way we eat. Yeah, changing the way we eat, our physical appearance are often at the top of the priority list for those making resolutions. Last week on this program, we visited with the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, Jason Tetro, and he shared some insight on the origins of something called keto. Well, it essentially is a treatment, believe it or not. Uh, it was designed as a treatment for epilepsy back in 1921. And um, <clears throat> back then, uh, what they were noticing was that if you were fasting for extended periods of time, you, you were helping to control epilepsy uh, seizures. So they wanted to figure out, well, what was going on? And it turns out that these ketones that we keep hearing about were being formed as a result of a loss of fat. How do you lose fat? You don't eat as much sugar and you don't eat as much protein and you increasingly add fat to your diet and that's how you achieve these ketones. So what happened is back in those days it was used as a treatment for children and it wasn't until the 1990s when we had the dawn of the you know friends look who was skinnier Rachel or uh, Monica that all of a sudden you know People needed to be thin on the runway, even though they weren't models. And so that particular diet had a side effect, which was you lost fat and you lost weight, and it became very, very popular. Once again, that is Jason Tetro, host of the Super uh, super Awesome Science Show. And joining us in studio, we wanted to introduce you to someone who has embraced the keto lifestyle. It's really a way of life. If I'm to gather uh, correctly what I, I think I've been learning over the last little while from this gentleman, Pat McCallum joins us in studio. Pat, great to see you. Thanks for this. And is, is this genuinely a, a lifestyle versus a diet? Yeah, it's definitely um, not a diet. It's for sure a lifestyle change. And, uh, you know, there's some lots of stuff on the Internet about it. Uh, there's different uh, ketogenic groups you can join. And uh, for anybody that, that isn't familiar with it, I would suggest to go to Netflix and watch The Magic Pill. What's that called? The Magic Pill. And it basically touches on what keto is and what it does for your body. And, you know, it's high fats, low carbs, and, uh, you know, obviously no sugars. You mentioned something off air that I think a lot of our listeners would have a hard time imagining they could ever do. How long has it been since you last had a potato? Um, August of 2017. What's wrong with potatoes? Um, there's really starchy carbs in there. And you know what? You know, maybe some people can do it, but I, you know, I, I wanted to stick as close to this lifestyle as I could. So, you know, there's no fries and there's no baked potatoes in my, uh, in my immediate future. So what was the... What was the reason? What 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 kickstarted this change for you, Pat? Well, you know, it's kind of a you know almost telling a story like the Joe Dirt back you know the the, the movie. So it's kind of a long drawn out process. Um, back in August two thousand fifteen, I uh, you know I was probably pretty heavy, and you know I I had a job that I really loved for you know fourteen and a half years, and uh, I was wrongfully dismissed and. You know, I was suffering uh, heavy PST and trauma, and, you know, it was a major life shift in uh, in, in my life. Um, you know, I had to go to the Health Science Centre, and, you know, my doctor, Yvette Fami, she was really supportive, and, uh, you know, so, you know, that was hard. Uh, I said I was going to make some changes, and I didn't. Uh, and then November 2016, I went to a curling event with uh, Kevin Park, who's a, a famous curler from Manitoba and, and uh, Alberta, and... Uh, I went to Calgary and we were supposed to play in Red Deer the following week, but I, I couldn't really get through the first event in Calgary. You know, I was 294 pounds. 
So I got in the car and I called uh, my good friend Reed Carruthers, who uh, is my closest friend in the world. Um, I was crying all the way to Edmonton. He says, Pat, he says, you got to make some changes. You can do this. And lots of people are here for you. And so, you know, I said I was going to make the change and I still hadn't, you know, done much about it. Um, so January 2017, I, I, I got a, a new job finally. It took a long time. Um, so I got a great job with a company called Beanbow Canada. And, uh, you know, uh, I've made the most of it and, you know, just showing gratitude uh, every single day. Uh, you know, you were saying about uh, the physical part, but the mental part is, uh, is one of the biggest challenges. Uh, when you have low self-esteem and you don't have love for yourself, um, it's hard to exude that towards others. So that it was a big part of it. So it's more say- than just changing what you, what you ate. I mean, this, this is I, a, a massive uh, reevaluation of who you are as a person because you were a high-performance curler for, for a long time. It's not, not as though you were unfamiliar with, with being in, in, in good physical condition. I was skinny all my life. And, you know, there was just, you know, I, I, there was a lapse of maybe uh, of, of knowledge of, of how much sugar I was putting in my body. You know, I would, on my weekends, I would drink uh, you know, I was never a heavy drinker, I, or I didn't consider myself, but I would drink, you know, 10 Jaegers or 10 Fireballs and five Red Bull Vodkas. And, and you know, th- there's so much sugar in that stuff. So I've cut that out. Actually, actually I've, I haven't drank since August of 2017. I'm not saying I won't drink again, but I certainly will pick and choose what I drink. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb were talking about the keto diet. We learned about it last week with the super awesome Science Show host, Jason Tetro. You can subscribe to that podcast anywhere you find podcasts to learn more about the keto. And essentially, it's, you know, no sugar. You want to reduce the carbs in your diet. And we have found someone who has incorporated this into his life. Friend of Greg's, Pat McCallum. Pat, you were telling us no sugar, you know, you don't eat potatoes anymore because it's super starchy, you don't drink alcohol. Another thing I guess you don't drink anymore, you mentioned chocolate milk, you told us off air, you loved chocolate milk, you don't drink that anymore, why is that? Um, well, you know, with the job I had, I mean, I actually worked for a dairy company, but, um, you know, in the car as a sales rep, uh, I would spend hours and hours in my car driving through northern Ontario and Manitoba and you know, one of the quick things you can buy is a, is a one liter chocolate jug of milk. And it's qu- quite a common thing, uh, you know, with younger people especially. And, you know, I was always told how great milk was for you. You know, healthy bones, healthy teeth, not bad for you. Chocolate, you think it's a better choice than grabbing a, a, pop, a pop, right? 100%. And it, you know, actually it's got more sugar than pop. But, uh, you know, I would drink a liter or two of chocolate milk all the time, not just once in a while, but all the time. And in one liter of chocolate milk, there's 126 grams of sugar. That's more than I, I would eat in two months now. Wow. In, in sorry, in, in, in one, one day. One, one day. Jug, yeah. So I would have, wow. you know, you know, I'd have two of those, not just one. And, you know, I, I was unaware of how much sugar was going into my body. And, and, you know, once I did some research and again, uh, there's that, uh, there's a show on, on, on Netflix that I, I, encourage everybody to, to watch is the magic pill. And, uh, you know, the amount of sugar that's in everything, I, you have to read every label. Um, some things you don't think sugar is in it. And all of a sudden there's 18 grams in one little serving. So or, like what, for example, like some, what's something that people might eat a lot of like ketchup would be ketchup a for one? sure. Uh, barbecue sauce, cereal. I mean, cereals, if, if you noticed how cheap cereals are now, um, you can go into a grocery store and there were cereals that used to be five or six bucks. They're selling them for a dollar ninety-eight. Uh, because people are becoming more aware and they're not giving their kids th- some of those cereals. So, Pat, you mentioned at one point you're up to 289? 294. 294. And so you decide you wanted to make a change. But, you know, we can talk about keto probably for another hour or so. But mm-hmm. there were some other things that inspired you to, to kickstart and, and to change some things. And, and I think sometimes... A change in in lifestyle, uh, some eye opening experiences go hand in hand when we decide to to make changes like this. Well, yeah, you know there was the the, the traumatic experience with with losing your job of fourteen and a half years. Definitely, you know, put me into a different mindset, and maybe uh, you know the the type of people I was hanging out with, or or some of the people I was giving too much of my time, and you know maybe being too much of an empath towards. So I wasn't looking after myself. I was more interested in helping others. And uh, one person comes to mind, uh, I won't mention names, I'll just call her Jay. Um, you 
know, in August of 2017 is really when this hit home. Uh, she had some, you know, she was, you know, alcohol abuse and, and definitely some other addictions. And, uh, you know, I wanted to save her. I wanted to, to pull her away from some of the criminals and predators that she had allowed into her life because I cared about this person so much. And, you know, you know, as I've learned along the way, you can only save somebody who wants to be saved and you got to look after yourself first. And if you don't love yourself, you have nothing left to give. Um, I, I mean, I was called a fat loser. Uh, I, I had my life threatened a couple of times. I had, you know, some, some stuff written on my car, said you're going to get it. And, you know, so I had to walk away and it was one of the hardest things I had to do. And I haven't seen Jay for quite some time. And, you know, me and Kaylee and Megan, um, and Jessica, we're hoping you come back safe, Jay. Pat McCallum is our guest. He has been telling us about his experience with how the keto diet has changed his life. And he brought in some uh, really tasty crackers. Uh, Sanissimo oven-baked uh, chia and flax oven-baked corn crackers. No sugar added. And, so they're uh, keto-friendly, yes. They are. Yeah. Yep. So they're tasty, Perfect. too. Perfect. We're on the diet already, Brett. Look at yeah, us. Yeah, look at it. Yeah. And I'm actually getting ready to go to the gym later on. Wow. So I'm guessing this is a healthy snack to give me some positive energy. Pat, pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very much. We're joined live in studio now by a couple of members of the board with Crime Stoppers. We have Paul Johnson, who is chair of Winnipeg Crime Stoppers, and Detective Sergeant Tom McKay with the Winnipeg Police, also on the board with Crime Stoppers, because it is Crime Stoppers Awareness Month. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Good morning. morning. Thanks for having us. So, uh, Detective Sergeant, why don't we start with you? In terms of the number of crimes that are solved by Crime Stoppers, I mean, it, it, it's in almost every Winnipeg Police news release that goes out. If you can help solve this, either call the police at this number or call Crime Stoppers, likely in case somebody's afraid to call the police. So how many crimes does your organization actually help the police solve? Well, I mean, that number varies from time to time, obviously. There's no rhyme or reason as to our successes, although there are many. Um, we don't go into specifics as to which cases that we sold, obviously, for anonymity reasons. Um, but I do have some numbers here that I can uh, kind of throw at you to try and give you an idea of what we uh, were looking at. Um, we'd sort of break things down on a month-to-month basis. Um, but just for example, last year in 2017, uh, we had a total of 91 people uh, charged and arrested as a result of our tips. Uh, those arrests also helped lead us to clearing up 245 cases that were still left open with the Winnipeg Police Service. How, how are those tips coming in? I'm curious, like, is it still phone calls mostly from people leaving a message or can it be a range of things? Well, we have to kind of keep up with the times, obviously. So uh, certainly our phone tips are still one of our primary uh, resources of, of tips. But we've also got the ability to receive web tips. So people can just log on to winnipegcrimestoppers.org click on submit a tip and it just kind of walks you through it and gives you a step-by-step there and kind of prompts the uh, the tipster with the information that we're looking for. Uh, we also have another feature, which is a, a text tip, not quite as popular. Um, I know in some other programs more so. Um, personally, I prefer, you know, phone calls where I can speak to them live and try and get as much information out of them as you can because we only get one shot at it, right? Once we say goodbye and hang up the phone, that's it. There's no callback. There's no numbers that are left, no names, nothing like that's kept on file. So um, it really does make make it all worthwhile to get as much information as you can. So, Paul, do, do we know why people uh, are reluctant to call in tips? And conversely, do we know, have we gained some knowledge as to what prompts and, and actually inevitably encourages people to pick up a phone or or to send in a tip? Well, I'd probably say the one thing with Winnipeg Crime Stoppers, we offer an opportunity uh, to be anonymous. And nowadays, I think people know they read the, you know, the gang violence and thing that's unfortunately is in Winnipeg, and you read about it every day. And uh, so, I mean, people are afraid to come forward sometimes. So the fact that we can provide this as an option, it gives, to me, it empowers people to give them an opportunity now to come up and do the right thing, make their community safer. And, and make sure that the police get the help that they need to do their job. How do you determine what's a valid tip and what's BS? Tom, I'll let you handle that one. <laughs> well, and that's really, that's a big part of it, right? And that's why uh, we're fortunate enough to have actual police officers working in our unit um, with many years of experience. So um, 
sometimes it's just gut instinct. Sometimes it's feeling. But a lot of times it just comes down to trying to check the validity of the information they're providing, right? If they give us a name or an address and that, uh, we'll go in and we'll research into that and delve into it, see if there's previous arrests made at that location or if that person's been arrested and has a history of drug offenses, for example. And we try and tie it all in together and put it into a nice package so that when we send it off to investigators, there's some meat to this, some substance that they're able to follow up on. How often do you hear from that caller or texter or person on email saying, this probably is nothing, but I wanted to let you know the following because I can think of my own, uh, my personality would allow me to believe, I, that's, I, just, I don't want to bother you with this, but we always hear from police, even the smallest piece of information can make a huge difference. So is it, is it as simple, simple as uh, the color of a jacket a person might have been wearing or how many people were outside a scene? Like what kind of things are useful? Well, I mean, obviously, the more detail we have, the better, right? Especially, uh, like, for example, large large part of the tips that we receive are, are drug-related, right? It's not a big secret that uh, drugs are rampant, and we're always doing our best to try and fight that. So, But when we get something like that, for example, we need to get some, some good details on that. We need to know how we can make a buy from that individual. It's not just as simple as saying, this person sells drugs, go get them. Mm-hmm. You know, the reality is, is uh, the volume of... of police work, and the lack of resources at times can be very challenging. So human nature being what it is, we need to put together as nice packages as we can for the officers so that when they get it, they're not starting from zero. Like they're not starting from ground zero here, right? They they have some sort of head start going. Crime Stoppers Awareness Month in studio with us. We have Paul Johnson, Chair of Winnipeg Crime Stoppers, and Detective Sergeant Tom Mackay with the Winnipeg Police Force, who is also on the board. Paul, how much uh, money does your organization pay out? Like, so, is, Yeah, like say in 2017, Tom referred to how much money was paid or how many crimes were solved. How much money do you then re- uh, reimburse these tipsters? Well, I mean, what we do is we meet every month and uh, Tom will bring us a list of successful callers that are saying, you know, this is the information they gave. And we kind of look at the risk that the person put themselves at, kind of like any and how specific the information was. And as a result, we'll come up with a number and it'll go from anywhere like up to $2,000 is the most that we would ever pay. Now, I think this year you've got statistics for this year. We authorized awards of up to uh, about $10,000. Actually, no. Um the value of rewards authorized for this year was just over $24,000. Wow. Me. Yeah. Okay. So, Where do you get your money? Well, and that's that's kind of what the the board does. Uh, we're, a, we're a registered charity. Uh, we're, we're volunteers. We're uh, what's called a working board. We go out there and, we, you know, we do golf tournaments and we shake the shake the doors and we get the, we raise the money through the community. And uh, what we do is we provide kind of the, the money and the – you know, we like we uh, pay for the phone. The phone that the that they use is not a police phone. It's paid for by Crime Stoppers, and there's no uh, like no, there's no way anybody would ever be able to find out who's calling that number. There's no call display or anything like that. So that's part of our job is to go to the public and uh, get the funds, and then what we do is we pay out the awards. So, where is this year's golf tourney? Uh, actually, this year is uh, June 11th at uh, Glendale. Uh, we've just moved to a new venue there. Uh, they've offered to uh, to host our tournament, uh, so we're looking forward to that and uh, hopefully get a good turnout. So, this is, oh, go ahead, Brett. I was just going to say, like you you referenced the there's no way to know who's calling you, and we're getting a couple of text messages saying like, how do we know that we are anonymous if we were to call in a tip? Well, I think I mean I can speak for Tom too, but we don't want to know who you are. Because the last thing we want to do is to uh, create a problem for the reputation of this program. This whole program is based on anonymity, and uh, people have to trust trust us that, uh, again, even, and I think, Ken, uh, pardon me, Tom can talk a little more about this. Uh, the information that's recorded from the caller does nothing to identify the caller. Like, we don't identify the sex of the caller. We don't, offend, you know, if they said anything, and I think maybe I'll let Tom pick up on this, we just... You know. What about even the phone number? Like, yeah. you know, that would be my, are you writing down the phone number I called from or doing a search after to figure out where I called from? Right. There's absolutely no call display, no call tracing. Really, there's no no games, no tricks. We, like Paul was already saying, we don't want to know who you are. Um, we don't want to be the ones to tarnish the reputation of Crime Stoppers because it's a worldwide organization. We don't want Winnipeg Crime Stoppers being known for you know, bringing the, the reputation down. So so if a female calls in, you wouldn't even put in the report, she said that it would just be the person, the caller said? I mean, 
Uh, just in terms of even gender, could probably identify someone depending on the circumstance. That could be very crucial, right? If it was, a, say, a jealous girlfriend, for example, and we put her and she and this and that, you're right. Those could definitely be identifiers. So um, we just general neutral. The tipster is commonly what we, we uh, that we use. So um, even if somebody calls us, sometimes you know they might blurt out, "My name's John Smith, and I live at one two three Smith Street." We still, well, sir, we don't take that information here and we don't record it either, right? When we prepare our reports, uh, there's nothing in there that would identify those people. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, it is Crime Stoppers Awareness Month and in studio with us, we have Paul Johnson, Chair of Winnipeg Crime Stoppers and Detective Sergeant Tom Mackay, also on the board with Crime Stoppers. And Greg, we had a couple of listeners text us the same question you were ready to pull the trigger on. Yeah, I'm not the sharpest uh, knife in the drawer, but sometimes I'm wondering... Okay, I, I'm pretty sure they've they've considered this. <laughs> so <laughs> Since it's anonymous, if I give you a tip... And it's worthy of a little bit of cash. How does that work? How do I get my money? Well, I'm afraid the answer is going to be a little anticlimactic for you. Um, what I'll tell you, though, is when you call in, whether you uh, text or email or phone, you're assigned a tip number. And that's how you remain anonymous through the whole process. So if you have to call back and say, hey, whatever happened to my tip? You just reference that number. We pull up the information and then we try and update you as best we can. Consequently, um, if you are successful and uh, a reward is coming to you, we do have a rather uh, slick design, I guess you might say, of how we maintain that anonymity through the beginning of the process all the way to the end. So even when it comes time for you to actually receive your money, your anonymity is still protected. At no time do you have to tell us your name, produce any identification or so forth. I can at least tell you that it's nothing uh, covert like standing on a street corner. Oh, having, I was going to ask, like a bag drop no or something? No, or nothing like that. No, it's definitely more streamlined. No, nothing like that. Definitely more streamlined. So and, I don't need uh, a burner phone or something to check like after no, I get my money. Uh, you'll okay. probably find that process very simple. So all you really got to do is just call wow. in with a successful tip, and then we'll explain the process to you at that time. There you go. So it's uh, so it's up to the, the, the tipster to follow up then? Is that what I understand? If it's a web tip where we uh, web tips I should have maybe stated that does allow us some two-way communication and even though you might think oh well, then you definitely know who we are it's all th- still through an encrypted program so even though that we can communicate back and forth we aren't seeing anything to identify what the email address is or where it originated from or anything like that so it's still all just as safe as it would just calling over the phone but if you had to write a check does it get written to tipster 182 like it's all cash no checks Oh, I yeah. like the cash. I like the sounds of this. I think I'm going to start go, go start solving some crimes for you guys. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so welcome I to need it. some extra income. You're going to get linked to a few too. It seems like Maclean's always at these bank robberies. <laughs> so, Paul, uh, I mean, we have a member of the Winnipeg Police Service with us here, but in general, over the years, have you been happy with the relationship that Crime Stoppers has with the police? Uh, I think we're very fortunate. The Winnipeg Police Service has supported the, the Crime Stopper program. Like 110 percent. The uh, in the past, I guess, about six or seven years, that the relationship we've had with the police executive has been very supportive. You know, the type of people that come out to our different events, they'll come out to our, uh, our dinners and things like that. And um, and they listen. You know, if we've got an issue, they're not afraid to listen to what we have to say, and it's always a good two way conversation. I think, as you said too, uh, the media has always been uh, right there with us, and as the the police. Um, media's releases are coming out it's or call crime stoppers and we hear that consistently uh, as well as you know we've got the big uh, right behind i guess where their media releases so we have a crime stopper logo on the back too so i can't say enough about it i've seen where other programs have uh, faltered a little bit with their police services and we hope the example that we have here is something that could be carried through right through the city right, right across the country is there anything being done? I'm just curious now because this must exist if it's not called Crime Stoppers. There must be forms of tipster lines or other in all sorts of jurisdictions across this world. And so I'm, is there anything that we could do better in terms of like the technology we can be using or that other countries might have when it comes to people adding the tips in? Or is this pretty much the standard for most policing services? Well, I'm not really sure how to answer that, to be honest. I'm not a tech guy by any stretch. So 
I would think that, um, I mean, we're right up there, at least in the sense of, you know, encryption programs and things like that, of that nature, to protect the, the identity of people. And really, that's sort of the, the whole cornerstone of the program, right, is to protect that anonymity. And so we do that at all costs. And uh, up to this point, we've been very successful. I wonder if that's why your texting might be low. You said you don't get that many tips via text. And, and that would be the one thing if I was trying to stay anonymous, I might worry about connection to my phone or other. Well, perhaps I can see that. And uh, hopefully maybe we can alleviate some of those fears with any of the listeners tonight or today. Um, the, the text tip is just as secure, as I mentioned, as the web tip is and that it's all encrypted and stuff. But the unfortunate part, and this is maybe where I kind of show my age a little bit, is with text tips, we don't get as much information, right? People are very brief in there. And as I was saying earlier, we need more detail. We need something to really sink our teeth into. So even though we can still communicate back and forth, I think the mindset is, is you know, kind of one word answers, that sort of thing. So Too many emojis. Yeah, well, so far we haven't got any of those, <laughs> but uh, we definitely need as much information as we can. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.